I'm licensed psychotherapist Greg Woodhill. Welcome to a Brave New Man podcast. On this show, we speak with both experts and non-experts in our goal of exploring all the ways that men are already getting it right, acknowledging all the ways that we're getting it wrong, and most importantly, learning how we can fix what needs to be fixed in order to have healthier, happier relationships and lives. Let's get started. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. On today's podcast, we're going to be talking about the autism spectrum. You may be asking yourself, what does the autism spectrum have to do with being a brave new man? Well, I want to refer you back to the four pillars of the new masculinity. And one of them that I hold so dear is empathy and compassion. That is one of the things that I think is such a trait of healthy masculinity. And in order to be empathetic and compassionate, we have to be curious. So from time to time, we have talked about things on the podcast that didn't directly relate to how to be more masculine, but rather how to open our hearts, how to understand ourselves better, and how to understand other people better in a way that makes us more curious and more loving. When I decided to do a podcast about the autism spectrum and all that that includes in intimacy and love and relationship, the first person that I thought about bringing on is Candice Christiansen, and I'm so happy that she came on to do this interview. I have known Candace for many years as a colleague in the treatment of sex and porn addiction, and I've known that the autism spectrum is a specialty of hers, but what I didn't expect in this interview is how much of Candace's own personal life and history she brings into this interview and fleshes it out in a way that I find truly amazing. Let me tell you about Candace. Candace Christiansen is passionate about treating all human beings with dignity and respect. As an autistic woman herself, a child sexual abuse survivor, a licensed clinician, and an intimacy and trauma expert, Candace has dedicated the last 20 years working with individuals with attachment-based disorders stemming from overt and covert developmental trauma. Her programs, Namaste Center for Healing, and the Global Prevention Project are internationally known for treating cisgender, transgender, non-binary individuals, as well as those on the autism spectrum who have a variety of intimacy issues and complex trauma. Candice is the author of the internationally known workbook, Mastering the Trauma Wound, a mindful approach to healing trauma and creating healthier relationships. Candace and her husband, Chris, will be launching the Autism and Intimacy podcast later this year. Here's Candace. Hello there, Candace Christiansen. Thanks so much for being with us here today. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be on today. As am I. We're talking today about something that you specialize in, which is the autism spectrum. And I'm so excited because I think we really have this misunderstood as a whole. And I want to ask you... Movies, I'll never forget the first time I saw the movie Rain Man, which I think was brilliant for portraying and introducing to general population what autism is. However, it set an example and I think a misunderstanding that when it's so severe, we came away from that movie thinking we understood what autism is, but it's so varied based on how it's portrayed every once in a while in a movie or TV So can I just ask you, can you help us understand what autism is? 
Sure. Well, I want to say what I love first about autism spectrum and uh, the fact that we've changed the diagnostic criteria to say spectrum is because truly it is a spectrum. It's Mm. like autistic people are like snowflakes. They're very unique. And Mm. so Rain Man does do a good job of showing some of the symptomatology, but each person on the spectrum may present a little bit different. Mm. I am not going to talk a lot about me today, but last year I was diagnosed as being Asperger's. And so I am on the autism spectrum. And as a female for 44 years, I socially camouflaged a lot of my symptoms. And so, yeah. And so everybody says that when I share, share it with them, but the guys in the autistic group that I facilitate know, and a lot of our clients, my staff know that they're, there are certain, you know, social and communication challenges that I have or deficits. There's also a lot of strengths that folks on the spectrum have. Yeah. But a lot of what we delineate in terms of someone being on the spectrum has to do with um, struggling perhaps with social emotional reciprocity, perhaps maybe not understanding communication. Um, when you're talking to someone, where do you stop and I start? Nonverbal mm. cues, social cues can be really awkward. Um, I miss most jokes. I'll laugh, but a lot of times I don't understand the punchline. That's very common for folks on the spectrum. I see. Folks on the spectrum can be very literal. And so there's also executive function deficits. So for instance, or challenges um, such as like time management, theory of mind deficits, where it's like I may understand or struggle with understanding your perspective at times. And I mm-hmm. think that someone might say, gosh, that seems really um normal of everyone, but intent, like my intention may be very different than someone else's based on being on the autism spectrum. So I use me as an example here because I think it's easier to explain some of the criteria when we're looking at autism spectrum. But you know, really what we're looking at, again, are those subtle social nuances that you, Greg, as a child picked up on, Mm. someone on the spectrum didn't, like myself, Mm. I didn't Mm -hmm. pick up on those social. So if Johnny got mad at me, I didn't understand that sometimes Johnny could be mean, perhaps I got very emotional and took it very, very personally, it ruined my entire day. Whereas for you, you could just brush it off. Mm. Or for instance, um, loud noises and bright lights can create sensory overload for me, as well as, you know, individuals on the spectrum. Um, Some have touch uh, sensitivity or might become touch defensive, for instance. Does uh, touch defensive, by that do you mean that when they're touched, it's it's an unpleasant thing that that someone touches them and it's like they're being touched by acid or something, so to speak? Yes. And so so it's so fascinating. Um, And when we, I hope you and I can talk today about working with folks on the spectrum that have intimacy issues or issues with, you know, whether it's sex addiction or so on and so forth, because what triggers someone on the spectrum could be, you know, bright lights, loud noises, that could be a trigger and not just, oh, you know, I'm triggered from my trauma from my past. Sure. Well, can you help us? First of all, I want to thank you so much for talking about your life here, Candace. It's, it's just so beautiful <laughs> to have a, like, like uh, um, you being able to talk about your experiences. And it's so helpful to me and to us having this conversation. Can you help us differentiate between someone who is 
let's say, sensitive emotionally, which I can say I have been at times over the years, someone who is, let's say, socially phobic versus somebody on the autism spectrum? Well, I'll just say first that we've gotten rid of Asperger's, um, you know, and the interesting thing, again, I think it's good that Asperger's, we've gotten rid of that because, you know, folks can be higher functioning than others um, where they're highly intelligent and really where they struggle is perhaps socially and with communication. So mm. there can also be folks who have a lot of intellectual deficits who are on the spectrum or are not speaking. They're very, you know, very bright and perhaps have other strengths, but are non-speaking. So they're non-verbal mm. and, you know, like perhaps repeat things over and over or they self-stim repetitively, so on and so forth. I remember when I volunteered years ago at an autism clinic and the children were non-verbal so we signed to them as part of communication. Um, very beautiful children and very bright in, in other ways and in tune in other ways, just nonverbal. And so, you know, when we're looking at someone who's socially phobic or scared to be connected, perhaps, you know, that's an anxiety disorder, right? Mm. That's an anxiety disorder. But someone on the spectrum we're looking at a pattern throughout their life. This is something that's going on in the brain, the mm. way that it's a neuro developmental deficit or it's it's something that's going on in, in a person's brain that's you know been going on since they were a child and perhaps the symptoms aren't manifested until later when it's you know for me for instance I didn't you know I knew looking back I knew like I can say like wow that is definitely spectrum behavior where mm -hmm. I missed I missed certain social cues like I said I I didn't understand communication. I could be very rigid and very black and white in my thinking. Mm -hmm. the, ex the executive function deficits of struggling with response inhibition where perhaps I'll say something without thinking. Mm -hmm. And again, these things sound, quote, normal to the everyday person. But we're looking at this as being persistent over time. I where see. there's a like historical, it's persistent over time. It's not just like, you know, sometimes I get stressed out or I'm mad at my partner and I blurt out something I regret yeah. persistent over time where it's like struggles with friendships, you know, tends to be bullied because of so being socially awkward, mm. not understanding social cues. I give eye contact every day in therapy, but I'll tell you, I'm exhausted by the end of the day yeah. because it takes so much out of me to do that. Whereas for you, Greg, as a therapist, that's not even something you think of, wow. right? It's yeah, like, right. Or, yeah, and we don't, for instance, our, our whole entire office, we don't use the, the overhead lights mm. because of my own sensitivity. But also we have so many autistic folks in the program that say, I, you know, I cannot handle the bright lights. And yeah. so we do a lot of things sensory wise to ensure our clients feel very comfortable in their body so that they can learn while they're at our center. Wow. And it's funny, Greg, because I never, I did not realize that I was doing this for more than me just saying, I don't like bright lights. Yes. Because right. I'm on a spectrum and I have a sensitivity. So those are the differences. You know, if we're talking about social phobia, it's an anxiety disorder. It has, it's not about autism. Yes. It's not something that is impacting your development or cognitive ability. So what I'm hearing you say, and it's so fascinating, Candace, is that a person on the spectrum wants to be 
social, wants to connect, but finds themselves with these neurological blocks to doing it. Like you said earlier, this perfect example of people make a joke. I laugh, but I'm not quite sure what the intention of the joke was. I just know I'm supposed to laugh. Like there's some uh, social emotional connection that if somebody's on the spectrum, there's a blockade in them feeling that understanding and connection. Do I have that right? Yes. And so again, like I, I'm, I'm a very intelligent person. Mm -hmm. And so I can get by to a point, but socially and in terms of communication and emotionally, you know, I have surrounded myself with very aware (laughs) staff Mm -hmm. that, you know, can support me because your intelligence may only get you so far, yes, right? So sure. it's like, so, and, and, and what, one of the really beautiful things about folks on the spectrum to our credit is that many folks on the spectrum mimic what is around them because a lot of people do not get diagnosed until they're adults, Yes. right? And so yeah. they go along their life thinking, I'm just awkward, I'm just kind of weird, I'm just mm. really quirky. And then they finally realize after so long, whoa, wait a minute, the social and communication emotional stuff going on here, I need to get this checked out because this is, you know, this doesn't seem, quote, normal and no one's normal, but normal in the sense of, I guess, our overall global community. I don't think the global community does a great job of being aware of folks on the spectrum because, again, we're very creative we see things in pictures, we're highly intelligent, but socially in communication, you know, we've got some challenges. And and so those are things that, yeah, I think you said it beautifully. You kind of already addressed this, but I wonder in general, doesn't person know if they are on this spectrum? And if so, or if not, how can someone self-assess? Well, I, it's so fascinating because whenever I ask someone that I'm working with, if I'm doing, you know, the intake assessment and I say, have you ever wondered if you were on the spectrum or, Mm -hmm. you know, has anyone in your family ever wondered? A majority of folks will say yes. You know, I have wondered because I do have these certain quirks and behaviors or, you know, what I've read. And so I will say there's a lot of literature out there nowadays. Cynthia Kim is an example. So she's an autistic female who's an author Hmm. and she's written this great little book has crayons on it. You know, I think I think I might be autistic Hmm. and she does a really beautiful job of really simplifying her own process. Um, I think she also has a book called Nerdy, Shy and Socially Inappropriate that one of our, um, the the individuals in our group suggested. And I started reading it and it's delightful. I mean, Mm. I think the reality is, is a lot of people do wonder, um, especially in their adulthood, whether someone's mentioned it or they've noticed from hearing about or knowing people. In my experience, a lot of people do have kind of an inkling if they are on the spectrum. But, you know, think about if you go back to Rain Man, Greg, and you think about about the stereotype of that label and how scary it is. Like for me, even like thinking, oh my gosh, do I tell Greg, mm. you know, on the podcast today? Because I yeah. thought about it. I thought, do I tell Greg? But here's the challenge and here's why I decided to tell you. Mm-hmm. It gets so exhausting for me to say they. When when I'm living, I am living being on the spectrum. Yes. It gets very tiresome of me to talk about other people yes. when it's me. <laughs> it's 
I love that. Yes. And a part of what we talk about on this show is if this applies to me, great. If this doesn't apply to me, great. But can we fucking understand what other people go through, right? And so you talking about your own life, it just fills me with such joy and brings this discussion so much more to life. I am so appreciative that we're talking about your experiences as well because it demystifies what we're talking about. You said that about Rain Man, the movie. This is somebody with severe, severe autism who couldn't take care of himself. So somebody who is on the spectrum might say, I don't want to be associated with that. I don't want people to think of me like that. I want to try to fit in and I don't want this to be something that people know about me. Yeah. Well, and there's such a stigma. You know, I was so nervous when I finally told my staff and my, mm. you know, my partner is, he's just so amazing and understanding. And, but I had colleagues that were close to me a few years ago when I approached them and said, you know, I think I might be on the spectrum. Mm. Their response was, well, you're too social to be uh, on the spectrum. Yeah, and so there's yeah. also this lack of education. I think a, a lot of clinicians have where they're not trained specific yeah. or specialists to know what to look for. And yes. so they take one symptom, for instance, oh, Candace, you make eye contact, you can't be on the spectrum. But what's funny about that and kind of sad, really, is that, yeah, I might be giving you eye contact because that's what I've been socially taught to do. But yes. it doesn't mean I'm not crawling out of my skin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, you figured it out. Uh, you do it, but yeah. it, ca it causes this very ego dystonic feeling inside of you. The, and and you, you, you build such a visceral picture of that. And, and that could be one of the things that somebody asks themselves. Does eye contact, does holding a gaze make me want to crawl out of my skin? What are some other questions somebody can ask themselves to say, wow, does this fit? Am I possibly on this spectrum? Well, and it's so much more, you know, again, like, like someone might say, I don't like giving eye contact and have a reason, you know, from childhood or whatever. But so we're looking at that. We're also looking at do you miss again, the social cues? Does someone, mm. someone say something or, or they look angry, but you misinterpret it? You know, do you struggle with developing age appropriate relationships? Do you, do you find yourself socially awkward and not sure what to say? And again, you're in a crowd or group, and people are naturally talking back and forth and you don't know when to insert <laughs> information. Yes. Um, yes. So, you know, there's so much more that goes into it. Uh, and so, yeah, I just... I want if the, if folks and I know clinicians listen to you because you're amazing, Greg. And so oh, I hope those you. clinicians. Oh, yeah. I mean, I hope the clinicians that are listening today can hear me when I say, please look at the diagnostic criteria and really educate yourself so that you're not making these blanket assumptions that just because your client is sitting in front of you looking at you, because in therapy, that's what we're taught to do. Yes. It doesn't mean that they're comfortable doing that. Yes. You know, it, look for other things, listen for other things, ask them, notice if they're uncomfortable because you have bright lights on or you have certain smells that they might mm -hmm. be sensitive to. Mm -hmm. Get some consultation if you're not sure because all of those things, you know, I hate going to Costco, Greg. There's too many people, the, the noise, it's very bright. So when I come into the office and you might have a client do that, they mm -hmm. might walk in really agitated, mm -hmm. but they might not be aware because they've not been assessed for <laughs> autism. Yes. And again, it's more than that, but that they're having sensory overload. 
Yes. And so, you know, you and I work with sex and porn addicts. We work yes. with a lot of other people. We work with highly traumatized people, so on and so forth. But one of the things that for folks that are listening, if you're a sex or porn addict or you're a clinician treating, you need to be aware of what is what can trigger a person on the spectrum to go into cycle could be sensory overload. Mm. Uh, to be clear, are you talking about someone going into the cycle of addiction? Because I was wondering if being on the spectrum fuels addiction in some way that you're aware of. One of the things that I have a theory on, and there's definitely not research on this, but for the folks that I work with that masturbate compulsively mm -hmm. to porn or whatever, I do wonder if it's self-stimulatory behavior. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. one of the primary traits that we look for with autism spectrum is self-stimming. Now, okay. everybody self-stims, whether you sure. fiddle with a pen or for me, my self-stimming behavior is one of them is I'll play with my hair. And so, yes. you know, if I, I definitely and that's just to, a way for me if I feel very, you know, if I feel a little bit anxious or overwhelmed, I'll play with my hair. It kind of keeps me grounded. Mm. So, you know, one of the things that a lot of our folks on the spectrum will say is they do wonder if masturbation for them is self-stimming because a lot of them do it when they are overloaded emotionally. Mm -hmm. And a lot of clients on the spectrum will either have a meltdown or they'll shut down. Yeah. They really struggle to uh, identify emotions yes. and recognize. So it look comes out as anger and a blow up. So a meltdown or they'll shut down or you know, they'll cope if they do have more of the compulsive behavior when they're viewing porn and masturbating through masturbation to self-stim. So we do a lot of work around what are some other healthy self-stimming behaviors that you can do yes. so that you're not moving into that sort of maladaptive, quote, stim behavior for you. Because, and again, they're the ones saying, I don't want to be masturbating all the time. I don't want right. to be masturbating because I feel sensory overload or I feel completely stressed out. I don't know what to do or, you know, and so we say, well, what are some other stimming behaviors that you do that we could replace it with? So I imagine that uh, because we don't want to take away something that's helping people, right? You don't want to, yes. what I mean to say is you don't want to say, you know, you trying to take care of yourself, you trying to self-stimulate so that you don't sit with this emotional, mental, physical overload is a bad thing. You just want to redirect it to ways that are more healthy. Yes, and, and healthy for the person. And so, yeah. you know, we use like squishies. We have these squishy hearts that our clients can hold on to. Mm. Um, one of our clients will fiddle. He, you know, he'll twirl, kind of stim with one of the coasters. Mm. Um, uh, we have clients that will fiddle with a pen, you know. And, and I'll also say this. One of the things that's really grounding and very, very helpful for folks on the spectrum, again, this will sound like for everyone else it's helpful, exercise, weight, oh, you know, yeah. like weighted blankets, doing some exercise where you can feel it or grounding, you know, hiking, things that you, I know for me, gardening or being in the dirt can be mm -hmm. very grounding for me. Yeah. So I'll do this interview with you. And as much as I love doing this, I yeah. also have to be aware that I've given a lot of sensory wise to you. And so I'll need to take some time to make sure I am grounded because otherwise what happens, I tend to forget I've got some sensory sensitivity yeah. is I'll push myself too hard and then I'm exhausted and then I have a meltdown. Yes, mm -hmm. what you're talking about here is is so important because what I hear in your words, self-compassion, self-empathy and self-care. 
you understand yourself, you realize when you get to a place in overload where you need to then take care of yourself in other ways, and you've made that just part of your life about how, how you take care of yourself. And there's, and yes. I'm hearing you talk about yourself in a way that is really self-compassionate, Candace. Well, thank you. I, you know, it has taken me a very long time. I think first with the diagnosis, there's a process. And Cynthia Kim talks about this. Actually, you know what? It's not Cynthia Kim. It's another author that talks about this. It's like making sense out of your diagnosis. And so Mm. first of all, you know, there's this like kind of, for me anyway, shock denial. What does this mean? For others, there's relief. And and Ah, at some point I did come to a space of relief. Like there's nothing quite wrong with me. This all makes sense. But I'll tell you, since I've learned that these things help me, specifically self-care and having that compassion and being patient with myself and, and being able to share with the people around me, so and, and like even you, Greg, so it's like, hey, if we're having an interaction and I talk over you or I miss mm. a cue, now you understand me better so it's not like Candace is rude. <laughs> you yes. Know, thought, right? Because that's the thing I really have struggled with over the years. It's like sometimes I'll come across as very honest and direct. Mm. And it's not that I mean to be rude. That's part of my symptoms. Wow. <laughs> so so I have learned to have some compassion and I have learned to self-care so that I can be the best person I can be when I am talking with you on a podcast or when I am in front of clients or when I am doing a presentation. Yeah. What you're saying is so important because I can see a scenario for someone who takes things personally, (laughs) like like I do from time to time, (laughs) that I could have a conversation with somebody, not know that they're on the spectrum, and there be an awkward moment where I do take it personally, where I think, wow, I think potentially Candace was upset with me, or she didn't like what I said, she was offended by my joke. So when you let people know that you are on the spectrum, it also allows the people around you to understand you better to understand themselves better and potentially to understand the social interaction and as you said a moment ago not take things so personally and that leads me to a what I consider to be an extremely huge and important topic which is how does being on the spectrum affect a person's dating or romantic or sex life well, it's so interesting. I love that we're talking about this because, you know, I recently did a presentation, a webinar, and I talked about this and I talked about all the different like intimacy issues <laughs> that yeah. folks on the spectrum can have. And it's not, again, that we don't want to be in relationship because many, many folks on the spectrum do. Some don't. And it's just there are some challenges based mm. on anxiety and not understanding cues. And yeah. when do I ask someone out? When do I kiss? When am I? Mm-hmm. supposed to have sex and yeah. and trying to figure it out and feeling socially awkward and not realizing like oh this is the time that you do this or this mm-hmm. and so it can be very challenging again because for someone that is not on the spectrum you've learned through your environment growing up for many many years the subtle social nuances and relational nuances and intimacy nuances that someone on the spectrum misses, often misses. And so again, guess where people a lot of times learn about relationships and sex and intimacy? Uh Uh-oh, pornography? The internet. The internet, yes, right. internet and you're right, pornography. And so a lot of well-meaning therapists that work with folks on the spectrum will say, 
you know, oh, to learn about sex, even parents of children mm. and, you know, youth on this spectrum get, they're like, I don't even know how to teach sex ed to mm. my spectrum child or teenager mm-hmm. or, you know, an adult, the therapist, I've heard therapists that have said this. So I just suggest they look at porn. Yeah. Well, okay, here's the, here's the challenge of getting online, right? Online for someone on the spectrum who sees the world as, oh, this is real and take things takes things literally yeah. and oftentimes may not recognize or have the same intent as someone else in terms of getting online will miss a lot of mm-hmm. things online. So, yeah, you might be able to get online and you start to chat in a chat room, but you are now – you might feel like you're safe online because I don't have to worry about – the person's facial expression. And if I'm missing a social cue, I can just type and read and understand what they say. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But for someone who's on the spectrum, do you really understand what they're saying online? And what if you're someone on the spectrum and all, and you're chatting with who you think are adults. And then all of a sudden a 13 year old gets online in your chat. How is that going to affect you on the spectrum? And so a lot of folks on the spectrum can can do great connecting online. That's where they get a lot of their social connection. There's a lot of folks on the spectrum who have traditional monogamous relationships. And I know a lot of people on the spectrum who don't. They're non-binary. They're in poly relationships. They're lesbian. They're gay. I'll be honest. I'm bisexual. I Mm -hmm. choose to be in a marriage with a man, Mm -hmm. but my husband understands that my sexuality is one that I'm bisexual. And so so I choose to be in a monogamous relationship with my husband because that's what absolutely, like I love him and that works for us. But I also know that my sexuality is bisexual. So so it's like for folks on the spectrum too, let me, I really want to get this point out there. There is the assumption that folks on the spectrum are asexual. They're not into being sexual. They're not interested in it. And Mm. that is a 100% fallacy. Mm, That's a mm -hmm. fallacy. A lot of folks on the spectrum are absolutely interested. They just don't know how. And so sadly, a lot turn to the internet, a lot end up looking at porn, a lot get addicted to porn. I'm not saying everybody by any means. I'm not an addict in terms, I'm not a porn addict. Okay. But what I am, the the folks that I treat, well, because I think I don't want people to assume that everyone on the spectrum. But a lot of folks that we treat who, well, who are on the spectrum end up do getting addicted to porn, Mm -hmm. you know, because that's where they started in terms of getting their sex education. And sadly, you know, felt like, oh, this feels good to look, to masturbate, to get my needs met. And oh, you know, because I'm socially awkward and I, you know, I don't know how to have a relationship, I'll just keep doing this, not realizing that, you know, it's a very, it can be a very lonely life. Then we have folks that are in relationship that are on the spectrum that were diagnosed as adults that have been in relationships for 20 years and their partners are really sick and tired because now they're finally on the spectrum. They find out, you know, after 20 years on the spectrum, they also have these struggles sexually and without various intimacy issues and they're kind of fed up. So yes. we work with a lot of folks all over the place sexually that are on the spectrum. And then you know what? I also I also know a lot of folks on the spectrum that don't have any sexual issues sure. that are like compulsive or you know, they may struggle with connection and so on and so forth, but they've done a really good job of adapting or they have support around them to do that. And yes. I will say I've been very blessed. You know, I've gotten a lot of therapy over the years. I've gotten a lot of, I have a great support system around mm-hmm. me, which I encourage mm-hmm. anyone on the spectrum and in general to have mm-hmm. so that I make sure, you know, in my relationship with my husband, you know, we are communicating in a healthy way. We've done the Gottman training. So, and that's a great for folks on the spectrum because it's very structured and linear and mm-hmm. concrete for 
me, I understand that. And it's great so that we do communicate in healthy ways and we do have intimacy in healthy ways. What you're saying is so important, Candace, because a couple of things that stood out to me. One, if holding the gaze of someone's eyes feels like an overload for someone, then to be in bed naked or to have any sort of eye-to-eye intimacy or physical contact for that person at times could also be overload. So in some cases, you're being very clear, this is not all cases, but in some cases, there's a logic to it. Of course, why wouldn't someone prefer porn if touch and intimacy is awkward or confusing to them? Porn is a way to express their sexuality without being in that territory that gets them in a really uncomfortable place. And secondarily, you're talking about reading cues, reading social cues. Is this person flirting with me? Do they want to be kissed right now? Are they angry with me because of something I just said? Or are they just angry because they're having a horrible day? And as you were describing it earlier, when you apply that into a relationship, there's going to be a lot of frustration for somebody, I think. We do so much reading of our partners in romantic relationships and in dating when you're almost second to second, moment to moment, trying to figure out how is this going and what does this person want and does this person like me, that if you're on the spectrum, there are a lot of those cues that a person wants to get but just doesn't get. So in relationship, I imagine that to be extremely frustrating and actually quite scary. So if there's anything about that you would add, that's great. But I also want to ask... What is it like to be the partner of somebody on the spectrum in a romantic relationship? Well, first, I just want to say brilliantly said, thank you for saying what you just said, because Mm. you absolutely get it. So that really touches me. And I Mm, just really want to express appreciation to you. You know, it's interesting. So my husband and I, we're um, actually starting an autism and intimacy podcast, and we'll be the ones that are interviewing folks and talking about it. And we also wrote how to communicate with your autistic spouse. It's just a handout. It's on my website, namasteadvice.com. And it's free. And the reason I tell you this is because it's been challenging. And I think we forget that for partners, you know, it really is a learning curve. And so I'm so grateful for my husband for being able to be patient with me, you know, when I do perseverate and when I do get really rigid and when I have these specialized interests or I can't switch over to a new project because I've just got to get this one thing Mm, done and, you know, and my executive function challenges are showing up. And Mm. so it, it can be really hard. There are really great books out there that talk about being in a coupleship with someone on the spectrum or if both people are on the spectrum uh-huh. and how to how to learn how to communicate. Mm. My husband and I have done a lot of work around that. Uh, you know, we still do a lot of work around that. Of, I, I believe it, sure. Yeah, that it's not personal. You know, sometimes yeah. my tone can be really flat at times and I'm, you know, I might be monotone in how I say it or might come across sharp. Mm. And I don't mean that, but after a long day, I might have sensory overload. And so I come across as flat tone, you know, I'm sharp. And, and so he's like, what, you know, well, that was rude. And I may not even recognize that I'm being rude. I feel Mm. like I'm just saying it, Yes. you know? And so, so there has been a lot of learning uh, together throughout the years. And then especially after I was diagnosed to say, Ooh, okay, this is part of being on the spectrum. And so me doing a lot of, Hey, I didn't intend for it to come across this way and being very mindful. And then he's been so patient. Wow, (laughs) that's so beautiful. Yeah. (laughs) 
as a therapist, I've said this before, who shows up, uh, who tends to show up in my office are mostly men. I didn't ask for that, but it's been fantastic over the years. 90, 95% of the clients that come through my doors are men. And I have worked with men who are on the spectrum. And one of the things that they report over and over again is, I know she needs something if they're in a heterosexual relationship. I know she needs something. I know she's upset with me. I just don't know what I did and I don't know how to fix it. And these are earnest, caring spouses or boyfriends or partners and they want to fix it. They want to meet their partner where they're at and at times they just don't know how. So when we would work on things like saying, listen for the emotion, ask your partner what he needs, what she needs, how do you soothe your partner in that moment? There is this desire to bridge that gap, but they will say over and over again, yeah, I just don't know how to do what you're saying. And we take a different tact. So a lot of the times it ends up being the partner who is not on the spectrum, educating the partner who is on the spectrum about how to best meet their needs when they are in an emotional situation. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Yes. And that can be very frustrating for the partner. Because as like you're describing your client, they want to folks on the spectrum, a lot of times are very conflict avoidant. It's mm. like very, very uncomfortable to be in conflict. Sure. And so, and again, there's a desire to but it's like, how do I say it? I don't know. Because again, there's that social communication challenge, right? And yeah. so, you know, for me, for instance, oh my gosh, I hate conflict. And I'm okay. in a position where I have staff and it can be very hard for me. Mm. And if I put anything in writing, it can be misunderstood. And so I have to be very, very careful of that. Same goes for clients who truly on the spectrum, they want, they don't want to be pissing off their partner. Yeah. They want to get it right. They just don't know how. And so I've developed a curriculum for our autism and intimacy group, and I'm working my butt off day and night to try and get this autism workbook out to the world mm -hmm. to really teach some concrete skills for helping folks learn how to communicate and learn how to connect. It is challenging. Yes. It really is. So if partners can be patient, you know, again, we did this handout and I, in the handout, I say literally use humor when you mm, can, because yeah. it humor, honestly, it's like, and I know you can get so frustrated, but my husband and I try and use humor and just truly because we misunderstand each other at times and, mm -hmm. you know, he'll take things personally and I'll be like, gosh, I don't mean, I do not mean that. And then we're off. It really takes a lot of practice. And, you know, how I understand things a lot of times, again, even though I'm highly intelligent is sometimes I need, oh, I need things repeated. I learn, you know, by things being concrete, yeah. spelled out. Sometimes I have to understand everything. And so when you were describing, you know, tune into her feelings and for someone on the spectrum, they might be like, I don't even know what she's feeling. I can't tell from her face. <laughs> right. I can't. Right. And then there's assumptions. So one of our cognitive distortions, if you will, and I say that with love because I have mm -hmm. it is we make assumptions. Yeah. There's a lot of assumptions yeah. because it doesn't necessarily register for me to ask. Mm. So mm -hmm. I'm just assuming partners feeling yeah. this way and your clients who are on the spectrum probably do that too. So you're suggesting that they ask? As awkward and hard as it is. <laughs> yes. Because it will be very, very awkward yeah. and hard. Of course. So what is one thing someone can do 
right now, what's one step they could take if what you're saying is resonating with them, Candace, and they're wondering, does this apply to me? Because a lot of what she's talking about sounds familiar. What's one step someone could take right now in the direction of understanding themselves better or healing? What could they do? Well, I think in terms of education, you know, Cynthia Kim's book is so lovely. It's such a short read. And I know people can get on Google. Tony Atwood is a lovely psychologist that has been in the field for years and really does a beautiful job. You can find him on YouTube everywhere. His name's Tony Atwood, just a brilliant man, psychologist that has been in the field, an expert in assessing folks on the spectrum. Mm. I encourage our clients, if they're wondering, to look him up. Cynthia Kim's book, look her up. If you're yeah. a female listener, to me, Spectrum Women is such an amazing book. Um, Nerdy, Shy, and Socially Inappropriate by Cynthia Kim is such a great book. Mm. I will say for me, reading and then watching, like listening to Tony Atwood on podcasts, yes. you know, reading and listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos of these experts, for me was really kind of the first step to say, okay, you know what, what I'm experiencing is real for me. There's a lot of folks that will say, I just know I am. And so Mm. I don't need to go get evaluated. If you do want to be evaluated, look for an autistic specialist in your city, you know, someone on the autism who who is an autism specialist or an autism clinic so that you are going to someone because I, you know, I've heard too often of clinicians who are general practitioners who will say, oh, you're not on the spectrum, even though the person was previously diagnosed. And they do that, especially with women, mm. because we mask really, really well. We're underdiagnosed, mm. misdiagnosed for so so long. Sure. And so it's like, that's that's the first thing that I would do. If you're wondering and it resonates, and you, people can always email me, you'll give my information, Greg, but yes. people can always reach out. Whenever I do a podcast and talk about spectrum, we always have people that reach out and say, hey, Candace, I heard you, or I'm happy to do my what I can to support getting that person a resource. Wonderful. But those were things that I did, and I, I encourage that. Read, watch, listen, and just really trust. You know, I want to validate those that are listening today to my story. Chances are, if you've wondered, and if someone's wondered, or if someone's wondered for you, chances are there's something going on that you want to get checked out. There's Then there's nothing wrong with you. Yes. And in finding those answers, what I heard from you and what I'm imagining here is that there's so much compassion for oneself. Uh, I've said this in many, many, many different situations to clients in all shapes, sizes, and forms. You make a lot of sense. We haven't yet figured out all of the corners, all of the nooks and crannies, but somewhere you make a lot of sense. And we're going to figure out your story and just how you make sense. And that opens up their heart to themselves. And that is a lot of what I hear you preaching today, Candice. And I got to say, this conversation has opened our minds. It has absolutely opened our hearts. I cannot thank you enough for all the information and the heart and uh, sharing your personal story because this has just been such a beautiful conversation. So thank you for sharing yourself with us here today. And I want to ask you, as you said just a moment ago, Candace, if people hear what you're saying, they want more of what you do, they want to read more about you, listen to what you do, how do they find you? Folks can go to my website at namasteadvice.com if you want to reach out to me. I actually, if you go to the contact page and you email, I'm the one that will get the email. So Lovely. I would be happy to talk with you if you are wanting more information or mm about whether or not you're on the spectrum or someone you love or resources, I'm here. 
That's such a beautiful invitation. Candice, thank you so much for your time, your heart, your thank brain. You. Thank you for joining us. And um, Thank you so much. You bet. Okay, so what now? Well, first of all, if you recognize yourself in some of the stories or symptoms that Candace talked about, that's awesome. You are now one step closer to understanding yourself and going on a journey of discovery to take you to a place where you more fully embrace and understand who you are and understand what makes you tick. Here are a few of the things that Candace mentioned. Does eye contact take a lot out of me? Do I miss or misinterpret social cues? Do I struggle to develop age-appropriate friendships? And finally, do I feel socially awkward at times and don't know how to participate in conversations? Well, if this is familiar to you, she recommends three different books. One, Cynthia Kim's I Think I Might Be Autistic, or Cynthia Kim's Nerdy, Shy, and Socially Inappropriate. She also recommends the book Spectrum Women if you're a woman who identifies somewhere on this autism spectrum to help you understand yourself. And finally, she talks about going on YouTube and watching the videos of Tony Atwood, who she says is just the guru on all things autism and can help explain and understand the questions you may have. If you don't resonate with any of this, two questions for you. One, do you find that your mind and your heart are more open and more understanding of the human experience right now than they were at the beginning of this interview? Because for me, the answer is definitively yes. As I listen to Candace tell her stories about her own life, as well as talking about autism spectrum in general, I found my mind and my heart were open and so full of compassion and understanding of what it's like to earnestly go through life being on this spectrum, wanting to connect and just not knowing how. I found myself with a little more love in my heart and a bigger smile on my face as a result of this conversation. And secondly, do any of these symptoms or stories remind you of people around you in your life, friends, family, relationship partners? If so, one, you may know what direction to point them in as far as self-assessing and asking themselves if they belong in this category of understanding. And secondly, you can understand them better and have more patience and more understanding in connecting in ways that are better for them. As always, stay curious, stay open-hearted, and let's embrace people who are like us and people who are not like us so that we can better understand ourselves and the human experience. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to A Brave New Man podcast. Make sure to subscribe to A Brave New Man on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. And come follow us on Instagram at A Brave New Man Pod. That's A Brave New Man P O D for updates on the show and our daily words of wisdom. See you next time.